This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zachran, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network, and you're listening to Scholarly Communication. Today, I'm speaking with Avi Steinman, Founder and CEO of Academic Language Experts. Avi is an expert in all things academic publishing, and we are here today to discuss how artificial intelligence is transforming higher education. Avi, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks so much, Caleb. Um, I've been a uh, a longtime listener of the New Books Network and then a co-host of uh, Scholarly Communication for the last year so. It's nice to be on the other side of the microphone and to answer a few questions for once. Yeah, no, of course. It's you know, we you've you've been been a great contributor to to NBN, especially the Scholarly Communication Channel, which really is, I think, one of the you know most unsung channels on on the NBN because you just can't find this sort of thing elsewhere. Um, but you know, I was just wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. Obviously, listeners probably be a little familiar with you to Scholarly Communication, but for those who who uh, might be first-time listeners. Can you talk about yourself and academic language experts? Yeah, of course, with pleasure. So um, yeah, I guess it all starts back about 10 years ago when I was a fresh college kid um, looking to uh, you know just get through my coursework and my studies. Um, and I was studying abroad and started doing some work for, well, one of my lecturers, um, you know, I asked him to write my papers in English as opposed to uh, to Hebrew, which was the, is the local language here in Israel. And he agreed and was impressed with my English and said, oh, you know, why don't you translate this article for me that I'm working on for uh, Cambridge publication? And I said, OK, how hard could that be? Um, not knowing that it would take me about six months to, you know, translate, edit, look up sources. It was it was a learn it was a steep learning curve. Um, but that was kind of my entry into this world of academic uh, research, academic publication, understanding the publication um, process and workflow, understanding what, you know, kind of the. The, the nightmare that researchers sometimes have to go through in order to get their research published. Um, and I kind of fell in love with the, with the whole industry. So that kind of evolved into um, my company, Academic Language Experts, uh, where we help uh, primarily non-native English speakers is our kind of first uh, you know, um, main clientele. Um, and to really level the play- playing field for them and make sure that they have every opportunity to publish alongside their Anglo peers. Um, so we do that through language services, such as translation and editing, proofreading, uh, but also through more kind of, um, I would say, academic consulting, uh, whether it's uh, coaching for early career researchers or book. We do a lot of book proposal preparation, which I think could be really relevant, um, probably for the listeners to this audience. Um, and, and and just all sorts of different academic review to get um, academic writing in shape for publication. So that's kind of, um, you know, the, been the last 10 years of academic language experts and, you know, I'm sure we'll get into it more recently 
Um, I've also kind of taken a, a great interest and started doing some work uh, in AI uh, as well. So it's um, it's exciting. I've gotten to know this whole world that is publication, both from the author side as well as the publisher side, and which is really fascinating because I think that sometimes like there's this kind of big crisscross or or speaking speaking past each other. You know, I think authors have a lot of legitimate critiques of how publishers work. Publishers have a lot of good reasons and rationales for why they work the way they do, but there isn't always a good conversation or healthy dialogue between those two camps. So um, I do try and kind of um, position myself right in between the two um, to foster that dialogue and understanding and, and communication. So obviously there's been so much change recently just with technology, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of different potentials uh, and also concerns that people have about artificial intelligence. Uh, I was just wondering if you could talk about the last 10 years, what you've sort of seen about how technology has transformed how scholars, you know, can interact with they, you know, more ways that they can uh, get their work out there. And then some of the, the maybe pitfalls that they should avoid or have had to avoid in the past 10 years. Yeah. So I'll be honest. I mean, I really kind of am a social sciences humanities guy. I started my company in those fields. Um, and I was a bit of a skeptic about how, uh, you know, how much it would really kind of penetrate in a serious way. Um, the the academic um, environment, um, especially in humanities and social sciences. Um, you know, I always thought kind of like, you know, AI was great to get you to up to 90%, but academics can't really afford that level. You know, they need to be exact and they wouldn't be, wouldn't be tolerant of tools that were mostly right most of the time. Um, so, and, and, and that was kind of, I guess what I would say is mistake number one that I, that I made. And mistake number two was thinking that the progression of these technologies would be linear and would be gradual. Um, and I think that all of us, including myself, um, definitely got a shock come November, 2022, when we started playing around with GPT and said, oh, wow, like at the very least, this does a really great job, um, you know, communicating and expressing ideas in clear and coherent manners, whether those ideas are accurate, um, whether they can source those ideas. There's a lot of issues that I'm sure we'll talk about um, in the next few minutes, but um, it's still, I don't think that takes away from the power or the impressive uh, impressiveness of the emerging technologies. And I want, it's important for me to say that it's not just about GPT. GPT is one of a slew of, of technologies, which is really um, impacting the work, you know, the, the work of researchers in all sorts of different ways, literally throughout the workflow, from the time that you're working on your grant proposals, try to get funding, um, through actually doing your research, whether it's in the lab or out or in the library or out in the field, um, through writing up your research, trying to get it published, peer review, all of these things, AI is impacting in different ways. And I think we could probably spend a, you know an entire discussion on each one of those separately and independently. So it's really, I think what's really important for researchers is not to get overwhelmed because it is overwhelming. I mean, as someone who spends a lot of time during my week researching and understanding these tools, and I'm actually running a course now called AI Tool Up Tuesdays, where we're teaching researchers how to actually, um, you know, uh, you know, we're bringing in the entrepreneurs who brought who, who built out these tools to talk about how researchers can use them. And it's really important. This is a, a really important point. Um, the tools that are built for researchers, specifically for researchers, in my opinion, are actually much more valuable than the generic tools that are out there. So such as GPT or MidJourney, I'm not saying those tools aren't valuable. They very much are. But all the critiques that we have with the generic tools are being worked on. These are these are problems that are being solved by entrepreneurs, most of whom are academics or have been academics themselves in the past. So um, what I would say is 
A, just because not everything is perfect now doesn't mean um, we're not, you know, kind of heading in an important direction that should be taken note about, of. And B is, I think it's important to get past our initial hesitation, fear, feeling of overwhelm, and just figure out how we slowly but surely figure out which tools are helpful for us and then integrate them into our uh, research workflow. So before delving into that actual individual tools that academics might uh, take a look at or make use of, uh, I just want to note that you're also a core team member of the group Kangaroo, that's C-A-N-G-A-R-U. Uh, and I was going to tell us a little bit about this organization and its objectives. By the way, that's that's a great uh, acronym. So so kudos. <laughs> uh, you know, I was not right. I am a core member, core team member. They did not ask me about the name. So I take no credit or a blame for uh, for the name. Definitely is um, more memorable than maybe some of the other abbreviations that we come across. Um I believe so. Uh, the kangaroo was started by a professor of AI and medicine uh, named uh, Gio Coavani, um, out based out of USC, and he basically um, noticed, which I think a lot of us noticed in the industry, that there was no uh, sort of unified policy among different publishers about what is and isn't allowed, what within the research writing process, um, what tools can or cannot be used as that in that process. So. Everybody knows that if you're working on a research in social sciences or in the STEM area, you need to declare your methods, right? How did I come about this research? But what if you're using, right, that, that's kind of on the one hand. On the opposite end, I think we would all agree that if someone uses, I don't know, Microsoft Word's grammar checker, you don't need to write in the methods, this is how I check my grammar, right? We just expect that's how it's done. The problem because it becomes when people are using AI, well, then there's really great areas kind of in between in the middle of those two. And we need to ask ourselves, well, what are we okay with and what are we not okay with? I think we would all agree that, you know, just kind of putting in a topic and saying, go write me a paper on, you know, the civil rights movement from start to finish. And I'm just going to send that into a journal. No one's going to be okay with that, right? That's just regurgitating what's already out there. There's no novelty to it. You don't, you don't have ownership. Uh, There's a lot of issues there. But on the other hand, just saying, you know, there are, there are all sorts of practical uses such as Helping it to uh, helping use G- or using GPT to help you write an abstract, um, reformatting your references, um, editing or possibly even rewriting parts of your paper to make them for clarity. So all those things. Well, then all of a sudden, how do they become like? What do we do with those? Are we okay with them? Are we not okay with them? Is it okay as long as we're transparent and clear about it? Do we have to declare? These are all questions that kind of each publisher has kind of. Some publishers have taken a stab at and given some generic advice. Most of the time there, it's way too thin and just doesn't help. So I think Geo's goal, which I really resonated with when he approached me about this project was, well, let's actually work together as publishers, which doesn't always happen, but we all kind of have a shared interest here to make sure that we're using AI responsibly. Um, let's work together to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that we kind of have these unified policies across different journals. So across, you know, so if, Imagine if Taylor and Francis and Wiley and uh, Springer Nature and Elsevier, they all had kind of this unified agreement about what is and isn't allowed in AI. Well, then all of a sudden it makes the researcher's job much easier to know, here's what I can use, here's what I can't use, and here's how I need to declare what's allowed or not allowed. Um, So that's something that's under progress. Currently, we're just kind of in the homework mode. It's a long and drawn out process that I think um, needs to be done thoroughly, but I'm hoping that on the other side, we'll have some sort of consensus around these issues. So, you know, some immediate use cases that I can think of for for AI tools are, you know, you discussed it before, something like like translation services, obviously, 
If you have written in one language and you want to uh, address uh, readers in a different language, it's easier to use some AI tools, you know, with some human human touch to, to fix up the edges, uh, just to get it out there because it can be really time consuming. You know, grammar, looking for for issues of grammar or or rephrasing sentences. Uh, what are some of the the immediate tools that you think that academics should consider uh, implementing in their, uh, you know, let's say different processes, maybe the research process or maybe the writing process, uh, just sort of going through through the uh, the life cycle of a uh, of a essay or book. Yeah, it's a good. It's a really good question. So first of all, you mentioned translation and editing, so I'll relate to those because we're working, we're hard at work trying to implement that and integrate it into our workflow as part of the work that we do at Academic Language Experts, so that we can maintain the same high level of um, quality that we ensure to our clients, but at the same time, um, bring the pricing down because we're able to use the AI as part of that process. Um, it's more challenging than you might initially expect for a number of reasons. First of all is, um, it, the, you know, as, as audience probably knows, there's a tendency to hallucinate, right? So you can have, we've had cases where you know, we're doing a translation. The translation looks pretty solid, meaning we're, we're reviewing a translation that was done by GPT. And then all of a sudden there's a new paragraph, which totally did not exist in the source, which GPT, GPT decided to add, or there's a paragraph that's removed, or there's mistranslations or misuse of terminology um, or entire pages that are skipped out. It's not it, the, the issue, the excitement around these language models is that they're language models. So they, they actually could do a pretty good job with writing. Um, and that's great, but you can put in the same, um, request twice. And once you'll get a great output and the next time you'll get a bad one. So it's the consistency there and knowing how to tweak and improve is a challenge. Um, there are things you can do around prompting and, you know, and good prompting, which can help um, kind of reduce that, those issues, but they're never limited entirely. So in an ironic way, it actually is probably more dangerous for researchers who don't know what they're doing to just use AI than just use a human. Like meaning even if the overall quality could be a, a similar, the risk of kind of embarrassing mistakes. And I've already seen, I've already seen an article where um, that was published that had the words regenerate response in it, um, which anyone who's used ChatGPT knows that that's like basically a template text from ChatGPT, which basically gave away that the author was just copying and pasting. So you have to be really careful. Um, there's also issues around plagiarism. That's an unresolved question about whether you can just kind of copy and paste. That's okay. Um, what if it's originally your text and it's being used to improve? There's all sorts of kind of gray areas, which I think are some of the issues that Kangaroo is trying to address. Um, so that's kind of in terms of what you mentioned. In terms of new other ways to use it. So I've I, I've broken it up into a few different categories, and this is how I built out the AI Tool of Tuesdays um, uh, course that we're putting on, which, which uh, by the way, the it's a seven-part course. And basically, there's a few different really powerful um, categories. And I won't go through every tool because there's over 20 tools that we feature, but A is um, research discovery and literature review. So one of the biggest issues as the digital era has kind of, you know, um, you know, become our, our MO when it comes to research is that it's just imp nearly impossible in any field to really cover the full gamut of the research literature that we need in order to properly do a literature review. So, so in certain fields, there are, you know, kind of a more formal scientific reviews that we can rely on, but it's a big problem. And people spend, you know, out, you know, a log large percentage of their time, just making sure they're not doing things that others have covered before or to quote the right people in the right, um, in the right places. Uh, so many of these research discovery tools are really great because they can actually help us hone in through semantic search on which um, so which kind of uh, 
on the one hand, it gives us more, just more articles to read, but there are great tools that help us kind of narrow that down also. There are also tools like ResearchRabbit, which help compare, which help actually show us connections between different articles. How many times was one article quoting another article? How many times does authors quote other authors? And it kind of gives us a map or a bit of a tree of where the research is, as opposed to trying to figure out each one, one at a time. So that's research discovery. Um, the second big category I would say is research management. So just keeping ourselves organized in all sorts of different ways and just making sure we have one um, you know, platform to keep, um, you know, to keep our research in, in you know, in a, in a way that's efficient and maximizes our productivity. Um, we did a session on images. So images is a really interesting issue, which to be honest, I didn't know that all that much about until I didn't realize that one in four images that are published, not even that are submitted, are actually problematic for all sorts of reasons, whether because they're duplicated, they might be copyrighted, they might be, um, uh, you know, they might be actually forged. There are forged images. Um, there are sleuths out there that kind of, you know, try to find those. Um, I'll mention Elizabeth Beck is someone you want to follow if you want to try and, you know, understand kind of a little bit more about the um, the dark side of science. Um, and then the the last category that I think is worth mentioning is writing and writing and 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 revision. So I think it's a really powerful tool when it comes to uh, writing summaries, taking what you've written and maybe turning it into something for social media or for a blog post. Um, but also just editing your own your own paper again with the kind of contingencies that I mentioned before. Um, so help with you know kind of it's a language model. So help with things that are related to language. I think can be um, can be really powerful. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, those are, you know, but but I, I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing, you know, um, uh, things around statistical modeling, um, you know, better uh, reference managers. Um, I think the limits are endless um, when it comes to AI and research. Um, but I think that that researchers should be looking to these AI, to the research specific AI tools, because they will try and address a lot of the issues uh, that the generic tools are not so good at addressing. So are there any, um, you know, more specific tools that are maybe out now or in development that uh, listeners might check out or, you know, keep on their radar as things that might be able to help them along the way? So I'll start with some shameless self-promotion, um, which is that I'm working on a tool uh, that's called SciWriter AI. Um, and the goal for SciWriter AI is really to be the world's first co-pilot for researchers to help them as they're writing their paper. So we're very used to this workflow whereby... We do our research, um, you know, we we find our sources, we do our literature review, then we go to the writing stage, we write it up, and then we'll have someone else kind of, you know, come back to us and give us some feedback. We might have someone else come and help us with language. We might have a language editor. We might have a translator if it's written in another language. We then send it off to the journal. The journal give, gets back to us with peer review. This is a very long and tedious process to get to that point of publication. I'm trying to reimagine, and this is quite a bit audacious and I'm, I'm and ambitious and I'm aware of it, but I'm trying to reimagine the workflow and say, okay, if we can harness the power of EO, of, excuse me, of AI for good, and we can harness the power of generative um, uh, artificial intelligence, can we actually do a lot of those processes in real time? So instead of having a researcher write in a way that's not exactly accurate English wise, or even the you know errors or mistakes in the writing up of the research itself, um, in the reporting of their research, is there a way to actually um, have a tool which integrates seamlessly into Word, or you know, to helps that helps the author as they're writing to fix up their writing, to give them feedback on their ideas, to suggest literature and citations that they may not have been aware of? And my goal is by the time that 
researcher is done, first of all, they're a lot more confident with the output because they have gotten a lot of help along the way. It's almost like having a personal writing assistant with you along that journey. Um, and second of all, the publishers have a lot less to do because there's a lot more work has been done. Um, to be clear, I'm not looking overnight to overthrow the peer review system and like say, oh, we don't know, we no longer need people looking over research. No, we do. In fact, I think the critical thinking skills that we employ, the, the, the novelty of our creative thought is even more important. But my point is, is that when you look at a typical review, there's a lot of comments there that are very technical. So what if we could already kind of move, you know, have all those addressed and all that's left is kind of the critical thinking about what's the contribution to the field, what impact might it have, what societal um, you know, ramifications might our, this research have. Those are the questions that I want the researchers, the reviewers, the readers to be looking at, not the more kind of, is this format exactly right? Is there, are there grammar correct issues? Um, so that's kind of the tool that's, um, we're currently building up the prototype um, as we speak. Um, and the website's already up. So SciWriter AI, if anyone wants to check that out. Um, but there are a lot of other really great tools out there um, that I'm big fans of. You know, I almost feel bad mentioning specific ones because there's so many good ones. Um, but I would say, you know, uh, you might want to check out Site. That's uh, S-C-I-T-E, um, where you can actually ask questions and you'll get answers with verified research um, that includes citations that are that are real. And so it's kind of like the power of GPT, but without the hallucinations and without, or with less hallucinations and more exact responses. Um, Scholar AI is a, is a plugin, which is an add-on to GPT, which does a similar thing. Um, they already have more than 15 million, 15 million uses in like the first two months, something wild like that. Um, because I think my theory is... Um, and I'll be curious to hear whether you agree with me about this, Caleb, is that, you know, scientific research, all of a sudden, um, if it can be used, if it can kind of be boiled down into its very essence um, and can be used as the source of some of these LLMs that are being built, some of these large language models, well, then all of a sudden scientific research becomes all that more important, right? Because if we're currently thinking about our issues around ChatGPT, about the fact that it, you know, makes up stuff or its sources can be based on, you know, Reddit posts or Quora, you know, questions. It's like, well, what if we could create really powerful large language models actually that build off of the scientific corpus? What would that look like? Um, and what kind of power could that mean? And I've already seen Elsevier has done this, you know, for a physician facing, right? Uh, so let's just imagine you're a doctor and you've got a patient and, you know, you've kind of got some symptoms in front of you, you've got a history um, what if you could plug that all in in real time and get some real time suggestions for what it might be? Again, not to replace the doctor, not to say the doctor is not important, but what if the doctor could have that, the power of those tools at their fingertips? So what power does that have? And that is only going to come from the scientific record, from the scientific research. So that's where I'm excited. Um, I, again, sorry, again, shameless self-promotion, but um, I've got an article coming out in Scholarly Kitchen, um, which um, which which uh, the re which readers can, um, maybe you can put it in the show notes. Um, that uh, we're talking about can basically what would a world look like where the LMs, where the large language models, where these companies such as OpenAI or Anthropic um, would be building their uh, their models based on scientific research and where could we get to if we did that? So that's actually something I'm really excited about and think is really cool, um, can be really um, transformative. So I, I think, you know, my I have sort of two minds about all this stuff. On, on the one hand, I find it you know, thrilling and exciting. And, you know, who knows, like you said, like if there's applications, you know, for example, your doctors can, you know, diagnose people more effectively than 
you know, than, than they can now. That would be an incredible, um, you know, use case. And, and you know, like the other, other things you've mentioned too about how it might help with the writing process. Uh, then there's also the second mind of just like fear. Um, you know, it's scary. Like who, you know, will this uh, um, remove the human, you know, humans from it? For example, you know, will people in academia uh, who have great reputations, you know, it turns out that the whole time that they just had great language models that were writing everything for them. And they haven't actually even seen what they, what, you know, is going under their name. So, you know, it, what would you sort of say to those out there that are, that are, are coming at this from a place of, of fear or concern? I think, first of all, I think the fear and concern are perfectly valid. And I, I tend to be on the kind of like, you know, my soapbox is what the power and, and potential of these tools are just because I feel like once the, you know, the train has left the station, we need to figure out how to do it responsibly and 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 right. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't room for concern. Any major technological shift, which is so dramatic, um, can have really, really serious um, collateral damage or, 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 or impact um, on a scale that we can't even imagine. Um, so I think the, the you know, I want to legitimize the you know, that, that, those kind of feelings I've had them myself. It's not like, um, you know, I'm, I'm immune. Um, but I also see the, the potential, especially in my field, which is, you know, English as a second language or helping researchers for whom English is a second language. Um, you know, I, I recently saw, uh, you know, a post that kind of went around about a professor who failed his entire class because he asked GPT if G, if GPT had written the, um, research papers that his students had submitted and GPT said, yes, I wrote all of them. Now, meanwhile, that's anyone who's used GPT realizes that's kind of a silly question to ask GPT because it can't possibly answer that accurately. Uh, but because it said yes, he went ahead and failed his entire class um, and basically accused them of cheating in a case where many of them, if not all of them, did not. So um, uh, we need to be really careful about how we use understanding that it's a language model and not a factual model. That's the first thing I always preach. This is not Wikipedia. So stop treating it like Wikipedia, right? It is a it is a way that helps us to describe or to say things in a in a in a better way. And even then we need to check it and make sure it's, you know, it's it's working properly. If we use it to just find information, you know, so brainstorming, yes. Fact checking, no. Um, you know, summarization, yes, with oversight, um, replacing critical thought and, uh, you know, kind of research writing and that process, no. So it's 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 understanding. And, and the truth is, I think part of this responsibility is on, on open AI also is to do this education and like, what is this for? You know, you don't take a roller coaster to go down the store to get your milk. Like there's just like, there's a mismatch between what the tool can do and what you know, kind of people are trying to use it for. Um, and so I think that's going to be really important um, and, and 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 critical to making sure that we're on top of it. I think there's also big legal issues that have been talked about around, well, where is all this information from? And did they have the right to scrape all this information? I think you're going to see a lot of lawsuits coming up in the next few years. So obviously there's concerns about individuals. I would say that I'll, to conclude your answering your question right now, I don't think there's a real world where someone who's a self-respecting researcher should be worried about what are the impacts of, you know, ChatGPT on will it replace me as a researcher, as a scholar? Do I think that in 20, 30 years, you know, when computers do a better job, you know, speaking to each other, metadata, could they come up with, could, could it, you know, important insights be retrieved without active human interaction? That's possible. 
Um, but currently it is really a, what I call a regurgitation machine. So, you know, and the whole point of research is it's supposed to be novel. You're supposed to be coming up with new ideas. So if you're, if, if all the GPT is doing is just regurgitating what was, well, then I think researchers can sleep soundly and safely at night. And, 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 and the opposite, they need to be kind of utilizing these tools to make sure that all the, what I like to think of is like, think about, make a list of like the five most annoying tasks you do as a researcher and then see if AI can help with those, right? Because we all have those tasks in our day that we're like, this is a pain, right? I'm sure at Caleb, after we're finished this episode, you're like, all right, I got to figure out how to audit it. I need to make sure where the ums were. I want to, you know, clean that up. I need to, well, like if you had a tool that could just do all that, and you probably do have some tools that you work with, but if you had a tool that was just flawless, that was amazing, like, yeah, Caleb can just do five, you know, can do three more episodes a day. Awesome. Like do what you love doing. So I think if we look at it like that, then all of a sudden we can take control over the situation and actually use these tools for good. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, we, we definitely use AI occasionally on episodes. Like sometimes if there's a lot of background noise, you know, it's easier to use an AI tool to scrape out that background noise and it can differentiate between and not perfectly. Like sometimes it doesn't work well, but, uh, for a lot of, for a lot of, uh, interviews, you know, if there's background noise and you don't, and you're listening to it, you're like, oh, there's no background noise. There's a decent chance there was background noise and we just removed it using an AI tool. Um, and you know, that stuff definitely exists, you know, like it's definitely, it's something that we are looking at all the time, especially because, you know, we do tons of interview, you know, we're constantly processing, interviews and it's a, it's a lot. So looking for, for any kind of a shortcut, you know, if there was a tool, you know, out there, I personally, I'm, a, I, I'm in favor of keeping in some ums. I think the human, you know, you still, you still want a bit of a human, a human feel. If, if people are speaking like an Aaron Sorkin uh, film, then, you know, there's something about it that doesn't sound, sound quite right. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, my, my, my final question, you know, you've, you've answered a lot of questions about, uh, you know, AI and tools like that. And, and I thought that was, you know, great, I like the way you put it, like, what are the five most annoying tasks? Um, but I was wondering if you, if you could share, you know, personally, like, is there a particular task, something that you were doing before that was annoying that now you found an AI tool to help you do it? Um, yeah, it's a really good question. One thing, it's very, it's kind of very basic um, that I've been using a lot for recently, aside from the translation editing, which, like I said, we're doing a lot of work to try and implement that and integrate it into our workflow is... Um, I tend to be quite active on LinkedIn. Um, if anyone wants to follow me on LinkedIn, you're more than welcome to. It's obvious, Damon. Um, and I find it really, I like LinkedIn as a platform and I find Twitter to be a bit more like demanding in terms of my time and my engagement. And like, I just, you know, I, 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 I do it, but I feel, and just getting, and I don't feel like writing the same post from LinkedIn to Twitter, you know, like it's just, I have kind of have to rewrite the post, even though it's the same post. So I just throw that into throw that into GPT and GPT can give me some really great, um, you know, really great kind of like, uh, you know, highlights that's written more in Twitter form. Um, so that's something that I just used it for today. Um, I, I do find that I'm, I use it almost on a daily basis. Um, so that's like kind of really, really great and helpful. Um, and also I, the other thing I really like to use it for is, um, acting as my uh, uh, kind of um, interlocutor or opponent on. So if I write a blog, I will throw the blog or if I write and, you know, if we have an academic article, we'll throw it in there and we'll say, tell us all the reasons that you disagree with this or why it's wrong or, and that actually helps me really shape in my, my shape, my argument um, and think about it. I, I would say on average about 
30 to 40% of the suggestions I think are valuable and positive. The other 60% either I've thought of and I have good reasons for why I reject them or just are rubbish. So it's like, I, you need to go in under with the understanding that like most of the feedback you're going to get probably you're not going to take. But for me, those spending the extra 10 seconds to get that value um, is really, really worthwhile. Um, and it's not a big expense at all. So, uh, so yeah, those are kind of just two things off the top of my mind that I can think of um, that I use it for on a daily basis. And I've been encouraging my, you know, my staff to really be experimenting and playing around also. Um, I've also used it to build client personas. This is kind of more of a business side. It's like, you know, we, we've noticed, for example, right, that more, more, more um, junior researchers or more, you know, kind of early career researchers are much more, much quicker to adapt and much quicker to um, onboard some of these tools than some of the more senior researchers. So that's presented a really interesting, unique dilemma for us from a marketing perspective, because it's like, okay, we want to integrate AI. We don't want to scare people, but we do want to be forward thinking. So how do we actually like speak these messages of like, we want to be informed by AI, but not run by it to our audience in a sophisticated way, in a way where both our junior, our more early career clients and our more senior clients can both kind of, uh, you know, feel like they have a place. That's a really difficult challenge. Um, and it's kind of like, it's a mix of ideas and marketing copy and and just approach. And actually asking GPT for help with that um, has been really effective. So yeah, that's a few things kind of off the top of my head. Yeah, no, those are, you know, I, I like, I love the interlocutor uh, idea of, of asking, throwing something in and asking uh, GPT to, to poke holes in it. You know, what the, the usage, I, I would say that the two main uses that I've used AI for, one of them is not, uh, you know, writing related, which is basically if I have, you know, let's say six or seven ingredients in my fridge and I'm not sure what to make um, to throw, be like, okay, tell, tell GP, GPT, okay, I have two onions, I have you know, sweet potato, you know, some few other things. And it, it comes up with dishes that, you know, I might not follow it exactly what it says, but it actually is pretty, is pretty useful for that. And then the other thing that I, that I think is, it, it's pretty nice for um, is if I'm ever, you know, have written a sentence that is really clunky and I just can't figure out how to make it sound, make it clearer, I'll, I'll throw it into GPT and just say, can you rewrite the sentence for clarity? And it almost always fixes the sentence uh, you know, and, you know, what it makes, it makes the, you know, corrects it from being passive to active or, or, or something like that. So it's definitely useful for that as a kind of a, you know, a line editor. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and you have to be aware that it's, it's, you know, um, it actually is quite, um, it's a lot more intrusive than let's say, you know, a word, a, a grammar checker might be. So you have to be ready for that, right? It's, it, if you're really, careful and cautious about your tone of voice, it can change style and tone of voice. So you have to, now, that being said, if you prompt it properly and give it an, a persona and say, okay, I am the, you know, um, the, you know, I'm writing for a history journal, uh, which has an audience in, you know, mainly in Europe and Africa. And I want to, you know, the, and then you write, can you please, you know, kind of edit this paragraph, it'll actually do a better job. Um, because it knows kind of where you're, where you're, we, we were talking about this in a staff meeting recently, that like, if I just write edit this text, right? Even if I wrote an email to you, Caleb, and I said, edit, Caleb, can you please edit this podcast? Well, probably the first thing you'd write back is, well, what do you mean by edit, right? Do you want me to fix up the wording? Do you want me to grammar check it? Do you want me to rewrite it entirely? Do you want me to proofread it? Like, there's a lot of different ways. So we have to remember 
it's almost as if someone someone gave this uh, example, which I really loved, which is think about um, GPT or similar tools as a first day of a new intern who just graduated college has never worked a day in their lives, but has infinite capacity for in potential intelligence, right? It's entirely idiot today, but could be brilliant within 20 seconds. But the clearer the instructions that you give them, the better off it will be. And I thought that was a really good way of saying it because it's kind of like it, it forces us to almost clarify for ourselves, well, what exactly do we mean? What exactly do we want? And then once we have that, we can get really great outputs. Wonderful. I mean, I think I think you've, you've uh, for any uh, listeners, I'm sure you've given them a lot of things to uh, to search, do some do some Googling, uh, you know, different different tools they can use. Uh, well, Avi, thank you so much for, for being a guest in the Books Network. Thanks for being a host as well, uh, Scholarly Communication. Uh, and of course, we'll we'll in the show notes we will add the things that you that you mentioned. Um, uh, but thanks so much for for being a guest. Awesome, thanks so much, Caleb. I appreciate you uh, taking the time, and it's an honor and pleasure to chat with you today. Wonderful. <laughs>